Hey, thanks for tuning in to this episode of You Really Shouldn't Have. Just a quick warning to say the following episode does contain some strong language, which some listeners may find offensive. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of You Really Shouldn't Have, the podcast where each week we discuss the highlights of a guest's career alongside unwrapping the stories on the worst gifts they've ever been given. My guest in this episode is stand-up comedian, actor and writer, Tristan J. Miller. Tristan, thanks so much for joining me today on the show. Thank you for having me on the show. Not a problem. Now, you started your career in stage and screen off at quite a young age. I'm interested to hear how it all started. Basically, what had happened was this. Number one, we were always like, I was homeschooled. So we were always very creative and like we would put on like little plays and stuff for my family. So that was always kind of there, the impetus. Um, But my older sibling joined a, a theater troupe and... Then I saw a show they were in and I saw how much fun they were having. And it was all like this kind of commedia dell'arte stuff with masks and it was pretty goofy. (laughs) And I was like, oh, that looks like just heaps of fun. And so that was kind of how I started. And I joined that theater troupe and did that for about a year and then um, didn't do anything. didn't do any acting for about a year. This was when I was about 14, 15. Okay. And then there was an audition at the local community theater where I'd done the theater troupe for Charlotte's Web. And they were holding auditions. And my mom and my sibling like pushed me towards auditioning. And I was like, well, you know, what part is there in that for me? Like what, what would I possibly do? And they both looked at each other. They looked at me and like Templeton the rat. And I was like, <laughs> I suppose you are right. And I did get Templeton the Rat, and that was really fun. And that's kind of how I I started. When was the transition then to more on-screen work? How did that come about? I always loved movies, and I always loved, like, we'd put little skits together in high school and stuff like that. But I went to the New York Conservatory for Dramatic Arts when I was about, I guess, you know, 18 to 20, um, and that was out here in New York, which I'm not, I'm not originally from here. I was, I grew up in Minnesota and, uh, <laughs> and so that was a heck of a transition. Um, gosh, wow. It was just, oh, oh boy. So that was a school that was primarily, uh, film and television based. So the first year was just normal acting, um, based in this technique called Meisner, which is like. He was one of the chief pioneers of naturalistic acting. Uh-huh. And that was year one. And year two was all about film and TV. And then from there, I started auditioning. And, you know, I haven't done anything really big, but here's hoping. But I've been making my own stuff lately. And I have been in a lot of short films and student films. And I'm, you know, a commercial or two. And I've been just you know, trying to get off the ground as it were, but it, it was always the goal to be a film actor. I never, <laughs> once I started being able to do short films and like getting cast and I, I've only done since moving back to the city, I've only done in, in 2015, I've only done four plays and they were all with the same company. And it's because I liked working with them and they were all outdoor Shakespeare. And I was like, well, if I'm going to do plays, I should just do, you know, Shakespeare because it's the most 
theater of theater thing you can do you mentioned there about the ultimate aim being that you wanted to do acting so i was interested in your move to stand-up comedy how did that come about where did the idea come from that you thought hey let's give stand-up comedy a go because that's quite a shift isn't it from straight acting yeah it is a bit um i was mostly cast in comedies because i have a weird chaotic energy that is either very scary i think for people or very goofy depending on like what role i'm in um but I'd always loved stand up and I always wanted to try it. And I tried it a couple of times when I was like 20 to like, I just absolutely was terrible. <laughs> um, it was just the worst. I remember <laughs> after my first open mic that I did, someone came up to me and was like, that was very interesting conceptually. <laughs> Which I'm like, thank, thank you. I'm not sure. But um, I was going for a concept. You did key in on that. I was doing like animal impressions and stuff and everyone was like, okay. Um, So I did a little bit of that when I was in New York and then I did a little bit more of it when I was in Minnesota and it was a combination of a couple of things. Always wanting to try because I grew up watching stand-up and I I haven't really realized how much I'd watched until recently because once again, being homeschooled, I had afternoons free and, um, Comedy Central would play all their specials from like mm, like eleven to three, you know, and I would just sit and watch special after special after special, and I would just like absorb it. So there was always that impetus, that desire to make people laugh, and I, I grew up making my mom laugh a lot with like funny characters and voices, and you know, and my older siblings are pretty funny too. So like that was always around. But I tried a little bit in Minnesota and they were doing these cabaret nights where you got 15 minutes a set and people would use it for songs or they'd use it for monologues. And so <laughs> me being who I am is I did three of those shows in a row. And so I had like 45 minutes of material. I was like, I think I'm good at this. And then I came out here and I was not good at this. But the stuff I was talking about was just like movies I liked and impressions and characters. And then um, around 2000, I guess it must have been 15 I got a, an official diagnosis of, of having bipolar disorder. And in order to kind of come to grips with that, I used stand up as a huge outlet for me to be able to talk about how that made me feel and also to make light of it in a way that made me feel better about it. You know, it's that old adage of like, if you can laugh at something, it makes it less frightening. Have you got any stories of strange or memorable heckles from audience members? Two, two come to mind. One was recently I was doing a Zoom show, you know, and um, it was for a birthday. <laughs> and this woman stopped the show we were doing, like during my set. It was an improv show, so it was a little like more okay. But she picked up her kid and was like, my kid wants to say happy birthday to the, <laughs> the person <laughs> whose birthday it was. <laughs> I was like, I've never been interrupted by a child during a comedy show. This is a first. Congrats. Um, but I do remember, I have a hard time dealing with hecklers, not because, like, like I try to just kind of be affable about it. And, like, I've only been heckled at comedy clubs. I've never been heckled in a bar because, like, if the person isn't interested in watching the show in a bar, they're just, like, going to go to the other side of it. Sure. Which is honestly preferable. Um but like I was doing a, a set at Broadway comedy club and I had done some material about being from Minnesota. And then I also grew up in South Dakota. And so I started doing a different bit about that. And someone, this, this Irish woman, this young Irish woman was like, 
I thought you were from Minnesota. I was like, it's not worth explaining where I've lived for this bit to work. It just, can you be quiet? And the thing I wanted to say is like, who's not giving you attention in your life right now that you need to bother me? And it is one of those things of like, when dealing with a heckler, my, my fear is always that like, I'm going to go, yeah, well, what's your relationship with your father? Like, you know, I'm going to immediately <laughs> try to sense, and I'm pretty generally pretty good at sensing why people are insecure and try to find that and like attack them. Because I know if I were to do that, I would, I would get upset at myself and probably start crying. And then like, it's like, is this, is this motherfucker crying on stage right now? <laughs> Which admittedly would be a great internet video. I'd probably go viral. It's like comedian destroys heckler, then weeps. <laughs> like, I think you definitely go viral with that. Oh yeah. <laughs> with the, uh, with the zoom uh, shows you've been doing recently with the lockdown, um, have you found that difficult to connect with the audience with them not being in the same room, so to speak? Absolutely. Um, I've only done like two or three of them. I did an Instagram live one and then like and Instagram was even weirder because like people are in the chat and they're like reacting to you, which is great. But like, it's clearly not the same. And then with the Zoom shows, it's like it's a lot of people are on mute. And so like the, you get no reaction. And also since it's like a call, a lot of people are more talkative, willing to interrupt the show because it's a lot less formal. So those aspects have been difficult, but the, the, all the shows I've done have been like super fun and they've all been put together by a great comedian friend of mine, Brittany Brave. Uh, and she, she puts together a good lineup and all the comics have been great, but like it's been really funny. There's always a group chat, so people like know who's on the show and like where to you know connect and like talk before the show. And what's always been funny is the comedians, and maybe I shouldn't put say this, but like all the comedians are texting during the show and being like, "Oh, this this audience member," or like, "Oh, what did you think <laughs> about this joke that I did?" And like, it's like chatting in the green room, only it's online. It's very weird. It's a very surreal experience. But it's been more or less enjoyable. And it's like one of those things of like, I can't get too mad because I'm, I'm also at home. The ideal is to perform comedy from one's own house because then like, oh my gosh, you don't have to, like in the way it works in New York, I don't know how it works in, you know, uh, the United Kingdom or, you know, other countries. But like with New York scene, there's different boroughs. And so each borough has its own, scene and so a lot of the times you're going from manhattan to brooklyn to queens back to manhattan to do sets all in one night and so to have the exact opposite of that where i can like do comedy in my pajamas that's amazing <laughs> how <laughs> what many a gift. how many shows do you tend to do then in one night normally when you're performing across new york um on average i'd say about two um but what I, I much prefer having one show at like close to every night if I can swing it rather than several shows because you get burnt out. You know, I know comics that do like a buddy of mine, Jean Marco Ceresi, who's hysterical. He he has done like I've seen that he's posted like he's done like seven shows in one night. And some of them were at like the same comedy club, just at different times. So he'd start at one comedy club, go to a different venue, go back to that comedy club, do two sets there, go back to a different place, go back to that comedy club. Cause he's a host at that comedy club. And so he's like hosting the shows and he has to be there and they're paid spots. So he's like grateful and like, but like, that sounds so stressful to me. (laughs) 
But I remember I did like four one night and like my head almost exploded. I just like the, the situation in New York with the train system and I get so stressed that I want to, I put off leaving. So I create the problem for myself. (laughs) But, um, but since everyone's kind of in the same boat, the comics are really cool about it of like, Hey, I have another show to get to. Can I go up at a certain time? And most of the time, the person that's putting the show together is like, yes, absolutely. Which is, you know, a nice form of bonding. But yeah, I think two on average. I haven't performed myself for a long time. I used to perform in London on the stand-up circuit mm. about six years back. And I remember one time I was doing two gigs in one night, like you were saying. Mm-hmm. I remember being on stage on the second gig halfway through a joke. And I thought, shit, have I already done this one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I've absolutely done that. I'm like, oh man, like I, I helped produce a couple festivals. And so I would end up doing some sets just to kind of kill time, like kill time because like, people wouldn't show up where I had to vamp for time or whatever. And I would remember having that exact situation because if you're doing more than one show a night, like I did, I think three or four one time. And I was just like, I, where am I? Who am I? What's going on? I can't understand. Who am I talking? (laughs) I don't remember. Especially if you look out in the audience and you're midway through the material and there's like that glazed look on their face. You think, (laughs) are are they not getting it? Or have I already done this bit? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that would be a fun like bit to do. It is as much itself. It's just like repeating one <laughs> joke for five minutes, and the audience is going, "Well, it's very conceptual and fascinating." And Andy Kaufman is rolling in his grave. Oh my god! What is the worst gift you've ever received? And I think this is telling of how charmed a life I have. The worst <laughs> gift I've received is the same gift multiple years in a row ah okay yeah my mother i'm a huge star wars fan um and my mother growing up like i was i would i i would be just absolutely manic in my pursuit of certain figures and one of them was a big dark lighter figure and biggs is like luke's friend from the first movie so my mother one christmas i was like looking for it all year my mother one christmas found it and bought it for me Wonderful, great gift, very thoughtful, amazing. Then the next year, she forgot that she'd already purchased this one for me. And she had bought it again, and I opened it. I was like, Mom, I'm going to re-gift this. And she's like, why? And then the third year, she intentionally bought it for me as, like, a gag gift. And I was like, that's that's very funny, but, like, at this point, what do I do with these and then the fourth year, she bought a variant. So it's the same character, but a different outfit. And I'm like, well, thanks. This is like appropriate. And I did want this. But like, once again, I think I have enough of Biggs. It's such a small part character as well. It wasn't even like it was one of the main characters. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was just like, okay, I wanted to flush out my collection with like the rebellion characters. It's like, now I have these four for the same guy but you know one of them's on my shelf right now so i think that speaks to how like weirdly thoughtful my mother is i've given <laughs> we've had weird <laughs> sync ups my mother and i we got my father like two years ago for christmas we got my father the exact same thing he has this habit of like picking at his nails and i have the same one so i can't judge he you know i like picks at hangnails and stuff like that so both he and my mother bought him like a group a nail grooming set 
And my mother's face, because he, he opened mine first, and she just, like, she astral projected. She just, like, got so mad in her own mind. And then I got him, he was complaining about his cell phone battery, so I got one of them, you know, an external cell phone battery. And then she, like, he opened that one before the second gift from my mom, and she bought him a new phone. Oh, no. So, like, we all were, like, we were both, like, very thoughtful, but, like, had different solutions. <laughs> and I was like, well, this kind of renders mine moot. Uh, but happy Christmas. Um, growing up, my grandmother, and I have this habit now of, like, but I don't wait for Christmas. She'd buy you a gift, sure, but she'd also give you four gifts that were just things she no longer wanted. <laughs> And I do this exact same thing. I've given away, like, as I'm slowly Marie conduing my whole life, my mind, most of all, but like gifting my friends things that I know they would like that I no longer want. And then I just, when, when preparing for this, I realized that, oh, that's definitely like a family trait <laughs> of like hoarding and then gifting and pretending you're being like thoughtful. <laughs> so what sort of things would she give you? Um, I mean, she would have like these weird, um, like, she gave me like articles of clothing. She would have like things that she bought for us to play with when, you know, she was there. We got cookware, I think. My mom kept getting cookware. And then like as gag gifts, she'd give us Tupperware, I believe. <laughs> like plastic Tupperware is like, I, you know, this is useful, but like it's not like a gift gift. It was very, my whole family has a pretty impish and good sense of humor. But like a lot of socks too. And like, I don't know. It was just so much random stuff like that you'd find in like a thrift shop knickknacks and so forth but like yeah yeah it's very silly You touched on your mental health earlier in the interview and your most recent solo show, Manic Impressive, deals with the subject of mental health and indeed your own experience with mental health. Have you found writing and performing that show to be a useful experience? And how has that show been received by the wider audience you perform to? Yes, absolutely. It was very helpful. It's very cathartic every time because it, my whole kind of theory behind it is if you can laugh with someone, they're more human. So it makes the whole stigma of mental illness a little you know it lessens it because you get to see someone you know you get to relate to someone because laughter when done right is an act of empathy because you're kind of you know you're joking with someone rather than at someone for sure yeah um but the show for me is very cathartic because you know i get to because the i think the main reason i really go for stand-up is i have this hyperactive mind and when you're on stage and it's just you you can kind of like go anywhere you want i always like it's about a 45 minute show on its own and then i always end up ad-libbing about like 10 more minutes of material and you're kind of allowed to explore whatever you want in that moment with stand-up and i really love that and that's really cathartic for me because i keep a lot of things inside on my day-to-day because there's just so much going on in my mind it's pretty chaotic and to be able to for you know 45 to 60 minutes just like kind of let loose is really it's a huge sense of relief 
it's absolutely wonderful. And the audiences have more or less been incredibly, you know, receptive to it. There was one time when I was still workshopping the show, someone did come up to me afterwards and uh, she was like, I think you're very funny. I was like, thank you so much, but okay. Uh, but I think you should focus on the happier things. You're very funny when you're talking about the happy things, but you shouldn't talk about, you know, the sad things. So I'm like, okay, you just disagreed with the concept of the show, <laughs> which is kind of the opposite of my first experience with stand up of like very conceptual, interesting, as opposed to stop conceptualizing anything. Um, but that was like the most negative review. I do remember I, I got to perform it in my hometown and this was a really beautiful thing and very moving emotionally for me. Um, after the show, I did a little Q and a, and then afterwards my parents who'd come to see the show, they were talking to someone they knew in the audience. And I, so I just stepped aside and then slowly a line started forming in front of me. And I was like, Oh, okay. So I guess we're doing a meet and greet. Uh, which I was not prepared for. Oh, wow. But yeah, it was very kind of overwhelming in the moment and very moving. And I, I for whatever reason, hadn't thought that people were going to want to talk to me after the show. I, I don't know why that, that thought had never crossed my mind. I think it's because I was doing a fringe festival. And like, if you're familiar with fringe festivals at all, like the minute the show's over, you have to get out of the theater. Because the next person's go. on, yeah. Yeah, because the next show is going to be in in like five minutes. So I'd been doing that. And so I think that was kind of in my mind. Um, but yeah, uh, and then someone came up to me and they were like, I recently got diagnosed. My therapist, want, my doctors want me to try um, therapy. I was really scared, but hearing about, you know, you talk about it today, I'm going to try and me being a comedian, my first thought was like, yeah, but did you think the show was funny? <laughs> and that's what's wrong with me. Um, but that was actually incredibly moving. And to know that you can make an impact on people using, you know, likeness and humor it is absolutely wonderful. And I'm really grateful that I, I got to do that run of the, the show last summer. It was just one of the best times in my life. How many shows did you do in, in total? Um, oh, gosh. I think about, I think six over the course of nine days. Uh -huh. um, the Minnesota Fringe Festival isn't as intense as, like, say, Edinburgh, which, you know, goes on for a month and you're performing every day. So I think you got, I got four or five shows, and then I booked another one in my hometown. And doing it over and over again was so lovely. And, you know, I, w I was traveling by myself and kind of getting that alone time was also really nice. I know you produce a few podcasts yourself. Tell us a bit about those. Oh, sure. Um, and not to be, uh, I was going to say nationalist, but that means something else. Not to presume anything on, on your end of the thing. But um, one of the podcasts I do is uh, we, we're currently reviewing the BBC um Poirot series and we review all sorts of different you know mystery media whether it be books or or movies we did like Knives Out and um, Clue the movie as well and those have always been really fun and that comes out every Monday it's called the Amateur Detective Club it's been really a blast and specifically Poirot is like one of my favorite all-time literary characters <laughs> I just love the little man <laughs> The little egg, egg man, egg shaped head man. 
Um, and so that has been very nice to do. Um, but the other one is about uh, mental health. If it's a, an interview podcast discussing the correlation between mental health and the artistic temperament, because there's a lot of like talk, like, do you have to be traumatized or ill in some way to make art? And um, I think there's a lot of interesting conversations to be had about like why, why that might be the case essentially. And that's called positive and negative. Obviously, with the current global situation with the coronavirus, I imagine what's next for you is probably a little bit different to what it would normally be. What does the rest of the year look like for you? Well, I'll continue to produce the podcasts I make. Um, that's been kind of a godsend of like having already started podcasts and being able to just like kind of amp up what I was doing has been really wonderful because I know a bunch of comedians that have like started it and are getting used to it. Um, so I'll continue doing those. And then I have a few like short films that I want to shoot and I am going to move on those as soon as I can. They're all pretty simple. So I hope that like I'll be able to shoot them pretty quickly once this whole thing calms down a little bit more. And then the tour that I'm trying to like, we'll see, we'll see if any of the venues are open across the country. Fingers crossed. Um, yeah, absolutely. I wanted to, that same friend of mine, Brittany Brave, she and I were going to go, okay, we're going to start a, a bar show and we're going to maybe start an improv troupe. But I'm like, I do still want to do that. We'll see if we're going to be able to. My only real concern is like with live performance, like where is that going to go? Because are we going to just have fewer seats, but bigger theaters? You know, everyone's six feet apart. So you get, you can have a five person audience, but they're all dispersed. Yeah, or, one, you know, one person per row. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Which, you know, the Midwestern American in me is like, that's how it should be. <laughs> so Tristan, wrapping up, if you could go right back to the beginning of either, I guess, your acting career or even your stand up career, what gift would you have given yourself to help you get to where you are now? Oh, go to therapy. I'd tell myself go to therapy. Um, the gift of self-reflection. No, um, I honestly, uh, and this has kind of changed for me. I was lucky enough to be able to get a, a, a new piece of like equipment, a new camera. And it's one of those things of like, I've always wanted to make shorts and sketches and be able to do that on my own. I would try to give my, you know, the gift of that, number one, like physically the the tools needed to make things on your own, number one. Number two, I, I was never able to sit and focus and research about like how to operate a camera well or how to, you know, write jokes. And so I, if we're talking like a metaphysical gift, I would love the gift of focus, which I've only received within the last like four or five years, despite being like still having such a weirdly diverse portfolio. And you would look and go, well, he's not focused at all, but like I can focus on each thing individual more successfully. And I wish I'd been able to come by that a little earlier on. And finally, where can people find out more about you and what you do? Ooh, I love this part. This is my favorite part because I get to mention, number one, I have a website, uh, Um, All updates, all that stuff. I have a mailing list available for you to sign up there. Um, also, I have a Patreon, which has a bunch of exclusive content and stuff like that. If you're interested in supporting me during these weird, weird times, it's patreon.com slash Tristan J. Miller. Twitter, Tristan J. Miller one. Instagram, Tristan J. Miller. Trying to make it as easy as possible for people to find me. Amazing. Tristan, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was really, really fun. 
Thanks again for listening to this episode of You Really Shouldn't Have. Be sure to subscribe to us on your chosen podcast service to make sure you never miss another episode. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Bad Gifts Pod, as well as online at badgiftspod.com. <laughs>